The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Take your Bibles and join me in John chapter 13. John chapter 13. I know we finished chapter 16 last study, but we're going to go back to chapter 13, and there's a very specific reason why. As you're turning there, I want to give you a little bit of my own heart. Uh, The older I get, and uh, I recognize how old I was, Aaron, we just sang Jesus' name above all names, and I almost said, isn't it great to sing that old song, except I remember when that was introduced in my Baptist church as a new song. So um, we're not going to go all there this morning, or I will feel older than I want to. But the older I get, the more I start thinking about my death. I know it's inevitable that God has the day of my entrance into his presence marked in ink on his calendar. There's no amount of exercise I can do to extend that date. Maybe I'll feel better between now and then. There's nothing I can do to hasten that date. God is sovereign over that day. But still, death is unnerving. I've often wondered if I would die suddenly or with the knowledge that I was nearing the end and have time to prepare I've also wondered what I would say to my family and my friends if I knew it were my final conversation. That's a humbling thought, isn't it? Imagine that you knew you were about to enter into the presence of God and you had one last conversation that you could have with your closest friends and your dearest family members. If I were to have a final conversation with my sons, I think it would mostly involve telling them how to live life while I'm gone. Here's what I want you to do and who I want you to become without me. How to grow up and be independent, how to be men's men and men of God. But when you get to John chapter 13, you find Jesus giving his final farewell address. These are his last words before the cross, before his impending death. But this conversation is very different than any other farewell that a person on earth has given to anyone they love. Instead of instructing them on how to live life without him after his death, Jesus' farewell discourse is on how to live life, get this, with him after his death. How to live life when he's present spiritually, but not present physically. As we've said all along, how to live life with him without him. Now, let's just recap a little bit because this morning we're going to go a very high-speed, high-altitude view of John 13 all the way through 16. And it's a review of everything we've done basically for the last year. So that we can land next week in looking at verse 1 of chapter 17, which is very special, very holy ground in the scripture. John records Jesus High priestly prayer, as it's called. His final prayer with his disciples. They overhear him speaking aloud to God. An inner Trinitarian conversation that we're allowed to eavesdrop on for all eternity. But I want us to get a running start and capture everything we've done so far. So that when we land in chapter 17, verse 1 next week, we have all of that really fresh. And we reach back in all we've studied back in chapter 13 through 16. John was special to Jesus. He was his best friend. He refers to himself in the Gospel of John as the disciple whom Jesus loved. 
In John 13, 23, you find there was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of the disciples whom Jesus loved, no doubt the apostle John. In John 19, 26, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing, near, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. That's how close John was to Jesus. In John 20, verse 2, she ran to Simon Peter, to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they've laid him. He was one of the first to hear of the resurrection. In John 21, 17, therefore the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, said to Peter, it is the Lord. In John 21, verse 20, Peter turned around, saw the disciples, the disciple whom Jesus loved, following them. Over and over in this gospel, you see the disciple whom Jesus loved. John had a very intimate knowledge of the second person of the Trinity. But here's what I find interesting. We, be, we noted this at the very beginning of our study. John was, by all accounts, Jesus' best friend and most personal confidant during his time on earth. And when John chose to write his gospel, which is a unique gospel, written some decades after Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are the synoptics, they compare chronologically the life of Christ. John writing spiritually and theologically and interpretively on the life of Christ. He only wrote 21 chapters. Now hold your finger in John 13 and turn over to the end of the book for a moment. This is a remarkable fact to me. The last verse, John chapter 21, verse 25. There are so many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. He's not saying it would fill every book in the world. He's saying the world could not contain all of the books that would be written if the things that Jesus did and said were recorded. That's amazing. What's mostly amazing to me is knowing all of that, John only wrote 21 chapters. And knowing that he only wrote 21 chapters, notice that five of those chapters have to do with one conversation. That's the farewell discourse. He's the only one who records this. We have very little to compare and contrast in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. He alone recorded the details of what was said and instructed during the Last Supper and as they journeyed down to the Kidron Valley where he would cross over and go into the Garden of Gethsemane and suffer alienation from his father. He spends more time on this conversation than anything else in his gospel account. It obviously made a massive impact on him. Now what's John about? Let's back way up for a second. Why is John unique from the other gospel writers. Well, first of all, the time is important. Number one, the, the, the gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke had already been written and were being passed around. He no doubt had those in his possession. This was written, though, get this, about two decades after the fall of Jerusalem. That's significant. This is written pushing 90, between 85 and 90 A.D., why is that important? Well, so much security of all of the Jews were wrapped into the existence of that temple. Its destruction was the final public announcement that the Messiah had not only come, but he'd been rejected by the Jews. 
Jesus predicted the fall of Jerusalem. Jesus said it was going to happen. He prepared his people for it, and still they rejected the Messiah. It was also the final declaration in very illustrative form that Jesus had cursed the nation of Israel. Remember in the final week of his life when he comes up to the fig tree and he curses the fig tree and says this is a figurative illustration of what's now happened to the nation of Israel for rejecting their Messiah. And we need to remember that. It's just a kind of a aside that I remember when I was uh, growing up in high school hearing all of the, it was the Hal Lindsey kind of generation. Everything was meant something, Gog, Magog, Magog, Russia, and everything that Hal Lindsey said then, by the way, the geography doesn't even make sense now. But I remember very clearly hearing over and over that in 1947, when, G, when the, uh, Israel became a state, that was the final thing that God had to do. Now the Messiah can come. That's ridiculous, guys. The Jewish nation could go out of existence tomorrow and come back into existence a hundred times, and it wouldn't derail God's calendar one bit. He's cursed the nation of Israel. And one day, one day, he will restore that nation when they look on the one whom they have pierced and said, this is truly the Messiah. These readers could really use the comforts of Jesus' instruction in these chapters only revealed by John because they were entirely discouraged. Not only were they being persecuted as Christians, now the final connection they had with their Jewish lineage to the temple was gone. What's most remarkable about that is in the temple were all the records of which tribe who belonged to, and that was wiped out. Ask any Jew today which tribe they belong to. They won't be able to tell you because... All of those records were done away with. God, in a very loud exclamation point, said, The Messiah is here and he's Jesus. Yes, he will restore Israel one day. Yes, the nation will be saved. Yes, they will look upon the one they've been, that has been pierced by their own doing. But right now, he is working through the church to do what the Jews were intended to do, which is proselytize the nation with the good news of their God. In these final five chapters, well, in the final in the verses, chapters 13 through 17, Jesus instructs his men in the most tender way. This doesn't sound like the rebuke he was giving the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the Pharisees. It doesn't sound like that at all. This is Jesus in a very heartfelt way instructing his men what it was going to be like when he left the planet. I want to tell you, it's been my desire for years to get to John 17. I have been reaching for that since the day I got here, excited that we would be able to eavesdrop on the, the true Lord's Prayer and hear Jesus speak to his Father and all the jewels of instruction that are ours in that passage. But we have to, first of all, start back here in chapter 13. Let's summarize. Where have we been? Now, I've tried to outline it. This is, I, I, I teach preaching and you're not supposed to do this, but I'm going to do it today. There are 10 points, okay? 10 ways to live life with Jesus without him. And we're going to look at fast-paced, these, these, uh, three, these uh, four chapters, rather. And uh, it's a long outline, but it's a lot of scripture. So we'll just dive in together, okay? 10 ways to live with Jesus without him. We're going to go back at chapter 13, get a running start, and see where that lands us before we hear the Lord pray in chapter 17. Number one. 
The first way to live with him without him is to imitate the example of humble service. Imitate the example, Jesus' example, of humble service. Let's remember where we began back in chapter 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come and that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This was no surprise to Jesus. This crucifixion event, this rejection event, the scourging, all of this was planned, premeditated, absolutely on track with the calendar of God the Father. Jesus knew it. He told his disciples over and over about it. None of this was a surprise. He knew his hour had come. And during supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that's important, he's about to be betrayed and killed, but he knew that he would have all authority as he would commission the the disciples in Matthew 28. And that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. I remember looking at that together back in the fall, the unbelievable theology that's in that statement. He was before the world began is going to return to God the Father. He got up from supper. This great God who's eternal. He got up from supper, God in flesh, laid aside his garments, taking a towel, he girded himself. When he poured water into the basin, began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, do you wish to wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do, you don't realize right now, but but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. So Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but he is but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. And for this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. But when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. I don't know whatever you do in your Bibles. If you underline, if you highlight, if you circle, if you mark, if you draw arrows, if you asterisk, whatever you do, verse 15 is one of those verses to do it to. I gave you an example by washing the disciples' feet that... You should also do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed. Here it is. If you do them. We're blessed if we do them. What is them? The example that Jesus gave us in being humble servants one to the other. This is remarkable. Before he starts telling these these friends how they can be comforted, he's going to get there. When he's gone, the first thing he says is make sure you're faithful in doing what I've called you to do and being obedient. Imitate the example of humble service. Give your life away for the service and betterment of those around you. You want to say it another way? Cure your selfishness with service. That's what he's saying. 
We're all intuitively, instinctively, undeniably selfish. Jesus says, no. No, I'm the Lord, I'm the teacher, and I serve you, do as I, I've done. Number two, remember the cross was divinely intentional. This is going to serve them later, it serves us as well. Remember that the cross was divinely intentional, no accident. Verse 18, chapter 13, verse 18. I do not speak of all of you. I I know the ones I've chosen, but is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I'm telling you before it comes to pass so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives also me. He who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit. That's a, little, that's a little insight into John's view of Jesus. It wasn't that Jesus knew, oh, I'm going to rise from the dead on Sunday. This is not a big deal. This, I can just endure this for a few days. He was deeply troubled. And he testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was one reclining on Jesus' bosom, one of whom the disciples, one of the one of whom that Jesus loved, by the way. This is John, verse twenty-three, leaning on his his breast. To Simon Peter gestured to him, and we talked about how much nonverbal contract uh, communication was happening during this Last Supper. He, Jesus says, "Somebody's going to betray me." John's laying on Jesus' breast, and Peter's going. Tell us of who he's speaking. Verse 25, he, leaning back on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, that is for the one whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew what purpose he'd said this to him. For some were supposing because Judas had the money box that Jesus was saying to him, by the things we have need of, buy some stuff we need, get stuff for the feast, in other words, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and this is such an interesting setting, and it was night. Jesus wanted the disciples to know from the very beginning, remember, they're going to remember this in the days, weeks, months, years, decades ahead. And they would remember that he called this shot. He said exactly what was going to happen, and it happened. The cross was divinely intentional. They were to never think how sad it was that Jesus finally lost the battle on the cross. And for us to live with him, without him, we need to remember that the cross was planned, premeditated, exactly as the Father executed his way of salvation, culminating on the cross. Number three. We're not going to read all of the sections, by the way. Find the way of salvation through Jesus. That's how we live with him, without him. Find the way of salvation through Jesus. Verse 31. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said... 
Now, now is the Son of Man glorified. That's remarkable. Now that the plan of execution had been begun, had begun, now Jesus was on the on-ramp to glory. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. That's important. God's glory began to be manifested in Jesus as he was approaching the cross immediately. This was the greatest expression of the glory of God, the death of his son. Little children, I'm with you a, a little while longer and you will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Remember that circle, highlight, star thing? Verse 35 is one of those as well. By this, loving one another, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for the other. Simon Peter said to him, missed the whole lesson about love, by the way. Totally went over his head. Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. We know Peter was martyred. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Now, I wish there wasn't a chapter marker right there, because right after that, you obviously know that the head of the disciples has just been rebuked by the Lord. This is the bravest of all the men. And instead of just leaving it, he says right after that, he had just told Peter, you're going to deny me. Next verse, do not let your heart be troubled. Why would their heart be troubled? They're starting to pick up. Jesus is leaving. Now Peter is our leader. He's going to deny him. Where are we? Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. This is, this is one of my favorite parts in the Bible. How Jesus baits the disciples. And you know the way where I'm going. Really? Remember, they thought he was going to go the half mile, 650 yards, from the upper room down to the temple mount, establish his kingship. They would all sit around him and beside him. They were arguing about that. And they thought he was saying, you know which way I'm going to go. And they needed to know that way because to appear out in the streets was to be arrested. Jesus was not popular by the end of the week. He says, you know the way where I'm going. You know the path, the road where I'm going. Peter doesn't speak. Why wouldn't Peter speak? Did you hear what Jesus just said to Peter? I don't think he's thinking about this right now. He's thinking, I'm going to deny Jesus three times before the, the morning? So Thomas, not doubting Thomas, this is bold Thomas right here. Thomas said to him, um, <clears throat> um, Lord, we uh, actually, we, we do not know where you are going and how do we know the way? How can we get to where you're going? And Jesus totally flips the equation on him and said to them, I am the way. <laughs> I'm the road. I'm the path. I am the root and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through 
me. Jesus establishes forever that the way of salvation is through himself. It is an exclusive way. It is a solitary way. It is a narrow way. It is defined by what we do with the Son of God, sacrifice for the sins of those who would believe. No one can go to heaven without Jesus. No one may be saved without bowing the knee to the Lordship of Christ. No one can escape hell without Jesus' sacrificial atoning death being applied to their account to save them from the wrath that is truly their desert. Number four, how do you live with him without him? Believe that Jesus is truly God. Believe that Jesus is truly God. We have to keep going. Verse 17. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. What a statement. If you would have known me, you would have known God also. From now on, you know him, and you've seen him. You have seen the Father. Philip, oh, poor Philip. Philip said to him, wait a minute, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. I mean, can you hear Jesus says, this is blue. Really, what's blue? They don't get it. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. It's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and yet you've not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. There's another underliner. Wow. Jesus is saying, if you've seen me, the incarnate God, you've seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father? The Father is in me. The words which I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father. The Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. In other words, no one does what I do. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will also do the greater works and greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus, one of the disciples, left with the overwhelming realization that he is God. That to see him is to see the Father. That to know him is to know the Father. That to believe in him is to believe in God the Father. Jesus is not a God, as the cults would say. Jesus is not just a prophet, as the other cults would say. He's God in flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. Number five. Don't fear the physical absence of Jesus. Don't fear the physical absence of Jesus. Verse 16. I'll ask the Father, he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. Now we talk about the Jesus is going to leave them divine assistance, divine presence. The person of God will be with them. Yes, he's promising them the Holy Spirit. Yes, this is the promise of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But there's more than that. 
The helper will be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and you will be with you, will be in you rather forever. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Not just the spirit, but now Jesus says, I will also come. After a little while, the world will see me no longer, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him. This is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. And will disclose myself to him. Jesus promises to disclose himself to those who love him and obey him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him. We will come and make our abode with him. Now he's saying, I will, the Spirit will come, I will come, and I and the Father will come. You have the permanent abiding indwelling and withdwelling of the entire Godhead. How much provision is that? He who does not love me does not keep my words. The Father, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. He goes on to say, look, I will not leave you alone. Don't fear me being gone because I will continue to be with you. What does he say in the Great Commission? I will never, what? Leave you or forsake you. Don't be afraid if Jesus isn't physically present, in other words. Don't be frightened by that. Understand that the presence of God is here, always with you, always accessible. Number six, define God's true family by the right criteria. Define God's true family by the right criteria. In other words, don't be duped by so-called believers into thinking that they're truly a part of the family of God when their lives don't bear that fruit. This is uh, chapter 15, verses 1 to 17. I'm the true vine. My, My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that you will bear fruit. The point of these 17 verses in John 15, is, is the first part of John 15, is for Jesus to say, not everyone who says they're attached to me is really a Christian, but only those who bear fruit. Now, it may be the tiniest, most shriveled up piece of grape on the vine, but there is some fruit, some evidence, some leaning that you really love and want to belong to Jesus and obey him. God's family is defined by fruit, not just belief. That is a radical thought. Get this. There are so, there's such a thing as an unsaved believer. This almost sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? An unsaved believer. What does that mean? James said there are those who believe, and but their works don't support their belief. Therefore, faith, belief, without works is what kind of faith? 
It's, it's dead. It's useless. John said they go out from us because they were not of us. Paul calls them so-called Christians. Jesus said some will get all the way to the judgment thinking that they're a part of me. They even bragged, didn't we, didn't we, didn't we in your name? And Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. Fruit bearing is important. We don't bear fruit to be saved. We bear fruit because we are saved. Define God's true family by the right criteria. Number seven. Expect that love for Jesus will draw hatred from the world. Expect that love for Jesus will draw hatred from from the world. This is chapter 15, verse 18, all the way through chapter 16, verse 4. They love, they didn't love me, so they won't love you. They hated me, they will hate you. The disciples will be known for their love, the world will be known for their hate, specifically their hatred of the gospel. Jesus says in these verses, expect, guys, expect that you're not going to be man of the year, student of the year, Christian of the year. Expect that you're going to be hated because you believe that I am the exclusive way. It is so preparatory for us today. Remember that people will, will cast disparaging rumors and reputation at us because we say that Jesus is the only way. They will look at us, 1 Corinthians 1, and say we are fools, crazy. Expect that. Change your expectations. Know what they're going to say. Know what they're going to do. Don't have a false expectation that everyone will stand up and give you a standing ovation for your righteous standards, your good deeds, and your love for Jesus. That's so kind of the Lord to tell us what's coming. Number eight. Trust the Spirit's guidance and work. Trust the Spirit's guidance and work. This is in chapter 16, beginning in verse 5. He promises that the Holy Spirit is coming. He promises that He will guide them into all the truth. He promises that the truth will be canonized by the Spirit. He says, you will not be left without revelation. Ultimately, that is fulfilled in this book we hold. Ultimately, the Spirit's work in revealing God through the Scriptures to us is maybe the best treasure you've ever thought of, and it's definitely the best treasure you've ever owned. Because without this, we know not God. We know not the way of salvation. Jesus is not defined. Remember 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul says that, beware of those who preach another Jesus. They have the Jesus name, but they define him entirely different. Beware of those who preach another gospel. Beware of those who use the gospel language without the gospel truth of the Bible. In other words, there's going to come a day when we'll have the same language but different dictionaries. Our dictionary for spiritual things is the Word of God. The world's language, liberals' language, those in the emerging church's language is we want the language of Christianity, but we'll supply our own definition. I saw this so vividly portrayed on a, on a news channel just this last week where this guy with a backwards collar was on a talk show and was basically saying, well, Jesus is whoever you think him to be in the best of all possibilities. Really? So the skater thinks Jesus is a skateboarder. 
So the gang member thinks Jesus is a good gang leader. I mean, what does that even mean? You cannot have the Lord Jesus defined by anything other than his words and his Bible. Number nine. I just want to stop at every one of these and re-preach all these sermons that we've done. Number nine. Measure grief against the joy of the resurrection. Remember, he's, he's getting them ready. He says, measure your grief by the joy of the resurrection. John chapter 16, verse 16. I have to read this section. A little while and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while you will see me. Some of the disciples were saying to one another, what is he talking about? What is he telling us this? A little while you will not see me. A little while you, you will see me because I go to the Father. So they were saying, what is this he says? A little while we do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew they wished to question him. And he said to them, are you deliberating together about this? What I said, a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament and the world will rejoice. That will happen in a matter of two days. They're going to crucify him tomorrow and the day after that. They would rejoice, the world would. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Huh? You're going to die, and our grief is going to be turned into joy? Whenever a woman is labor, she has pain but her hour, because her hours has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that the child has been born into the world. Great illustration. All this pain, as soon as you see that baby, that memory is gone. Therefore, you too will have grief now, but I will see you again. Now think about that. Gonna go die. You will have grief, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice. And no one will take your joy away from you. In that day, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive. Why? 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 Why such access? So that your joy may be made what? Full. Absolutely full. How is our joy made full? By the hope of the resurrection. I'm telling you, I'm convinced because of a reading of Acts that I did, I think uh, last summer, we talked about this uh, uh, on Easter Sunday. If you'll just read the book of Acts, the very first generation of the church, and just mark, just highlight, just listen to how much emphasis those early apostles, disciples, and believers put on the resurrection, that's what they were on trial for. That's what their message was mocked mostly about. And if you have the resurrection down, there is nothing that can steal your joy. What's the worst thing? Luke chapter 12. What's the worst thing man can do to you? Do not fear those who kill the body, but I tell you, fear him who destroys both body and soul in hell. I tell you, indeed, fear him. Jesus is saying, don't fear them who can destroy your body. I mean, just put yourself in their toga for a second, okay? Don't fear them who can kill you. What? That seems pretty bad to me, Jesus. Don't fear the ones who can kill you. That, that's not good news. But if you fear the one who has his hand that holds eternity, there's nothing to fear. If the ultimate threat of death is conquered, there is nothing else to fear. George Whitfield, until God calls me home, 
I am invincible. And even when he does, I'll go to heaven. Measure any grief by the joy of the resurrection. No matter what these disciples would face, no matter what trouble your heart engages or encounters, you can stop and push pause and say, heaven one day and it's real. And that should give perspective. And number 10, we just looked at this in our last study. Take courage that Jesus has overcome the world. Take courage that Jesus has overcome the world. Verse 33, these things I've spoken to you that meant in the last paragraph and in all the chapters before, these things I've spoken to you so that in me, there's another underliner, highlighter, circular phrase, in me you may have peace. That's huge. In me, you may have peace. In me, you'll be secure. In me, your troubles will be diminished. In me, your doubts will be dissolved. In me, peace will be sustained. In the world, though, here's a contrast. In the world, you have tribulation. But you know what? Take courage. Because I've overcome the world. See how everything points toward eternity? I told you about my friend in Africa who says, you don't understand, Rick. I said, we pray so much for you. He said, no, we pray for you. Because we have the certain expectation of death all around us by disease, famine, sickness, a lack of penicillin, rogue people that will come through and shoot us for fun. We have the threat of death on us all the time and it makes us long for heaven. We pray for the Christians in America who have nothing to look hope for, nothing in heaven to look hope for that's more attractive than what they look for being alive that day in America. Wow. African Christians are praying for us that our perspective would be less on this world and more in heaven. You pull all this together. Listen, Jesus is never, he left us the assurance, he's never surprised by our troubles. He's always the one who provides our needs in troubles. He takes care of our troubles. He cares that we have troubles. He's about to go to the garden and be rejected by the Holy Father on behalf of us. And he's still looking after us and them. Jesus is here and present for our troubles. He's never missed one source of your anxiety in your whole life. He's never said whoops. He's never said wow. He's never said oh my. He's here and present. He's available for us in our darkest hours. If, if, if John 14 verses 1 to 6 is the case, if he is our way and our truth and our life, then these These secure comforts are ours. If you don't know Christ, can I just tell you, you are in more trouble than any trouble you can imagine that could happen to you, any anxiety that could be caused. Nothing will measure to the rejection of God because you've dismissed his son and you'll be sentenced to an eternity in hell. There is no anxiety that can match that. I think of hell and it just, hell is bad enough. 
But what makes hell turned up on full volume is the fact that it just, there's, there's never a second chance. It never ends. No one ever gets a mulligan. No one can start over. No one can say, now I know. Now I'll do it right. Even the parable of Lazarus. The man in hell said, please, go tell my brothers. Go tell my family to make different decisions and not end up here. What decision is that? Everyone will be punished in hell because of their sins or at the cross because of their sins. What kind, I just still say, what kind of foolish person would say, I want to suffer for my sins and I would reject the offer of God and His Son to pay for my sins. What kind of fool are you to say that you have tomorrow to get things right with God when the Lord may require your life today? So you're trying to scare us? You bet. This is scary stuff. Which is why Jesus left us with all of this provisional insight and knowledge so that we could be prepared for the great day of judgment. You say, how can we believe that? Because God raised him from the dead. That's how we believe that. That's the stamp and the proof of everything Jesus said and did. He raised him from the dead after he died on the cross in the place of those who believe. Do you? Do you believe? Will you believe? My greatest fear as a pastor is not so much that someone who's never heard the gospel might, might not hear it. I wanna, that's a passion that we need to go tell people, every, everyone who would listen about the gospel. From a pastoral perspective, my greatest fear is that there are those who will show up in Matthew 7 who've been a part of Mission Road Bible Church for, Church for many weeks, months, years, decades. And say, look, look at what I did in your name. And God would say, depart from me. And we, we never had a relationship. I never knew you. You thought doing good got you here. It doesn't. You thought being nice got you here. It doesn't. I am the way. I, Jesus said, am the way. Do you, have you embraced him as the way? Aaron's going to come and lead us in some, in some songs that can reflect on this truth. I love singing after, after Bible study. Love singing. And after that, I think Mike is going to be over here by this door into our prayer room. And what we want to do is meet with you. If you have any questions about your soul, about joining our church, any question that we can help give you biblical counsel and spiritual insight on, or even just to simply pray with you, we would love to do that with you. After we sing, Father, we are. I'm, I'm overwhelmed to see all of this in one shot after having studied it for a year. At your gracious, kind love and provision for us, for me, to not be left alone, to not be forsaken, to not be left as an orphan. No one cares like Jesus will cause us to care most about him. We pray this in the Savior's name. Amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. 
For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. 